This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, we have the almighty Kirok as our guest star. Hello everybody, welcome back to Watches of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review critique show that's putting the humanities back in science fiction. I am Gap and I am joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi. Oh. Oh, is right. <laughs> this week. <laughs> I feel like some of the episodes this season aren't listed as the worst episode because they're ones that are like so badly done with such bad messages that people just forgot they exist outright I, I, that, yeah that's, that seems about right because oh boy oh boy yeah so uh what what uh, planet of hats do we have this week Gepwin? it's the native american planet or as they insist on calling them american indians which i guess just i think just some terms changed this happens but well you know, some folks do uh call you know the native americans in the united states specifically american indians uh and generally from what i understand that's the term that is only applied to natives that from the united states but not other parts of the americas so okay like, yeah it's hard yeah. to super weirdly specific it's hard to know some of the stuff in this show some of the stuff in this show they were trying to be sensitive to people and some of this stuff is just like random like the 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 people on this planet are from that davy crockett show yep (laughs) like it's it's that level of of native american representation yeah we'll just copy and paste it over no one will tell the difference yeah it's actually the cake (laughs) i remember a scene from the disney davy crockett show which i like i loved those movies when i was a little kid i remember there was a scene where he like meets a Native American guy, and they both make random made-up hand gestures at each other because, you know, he speaks Indian signs. I have no words for that. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, it feels like it's that level of stuff, which, you know, was a similar era, so I guess it makes sense. But Star Trek prides itself on trying to be good and diverse and whatnot, yet they keep writing this stuff. Well, I think this maybe is a case of one of those... They should have been uh, uh, known better, but they didn't yet. Mm. And went for a while, unfortunately. Well, I think it just it just goes to show this this thing that everyone talks about a lot, which is the more representation that you have amongst the people making your thing, the more people will be able to point out when you're doing something stupid. Yes. It's like, um, so I have some experience with this culture or this background, um, and what you're trying to say is complete bullshit. <laughs> so uh, here's a better way to go about what you're trying to do that isn't so uh, crazy pants insane here. So this episode was written by Margaret Arman, who we saw an episode by them before, was the Game Masters of Triskelion. Also not great. Yeah, uh, are we going to have Quatloos at least in this one? No. Oh. No Quatloos. <laughs> and we are later in this season apparently going to get the episode called Clouds of the Cloud Miners. Minders. Minders? Minders. Minders. You're right. Cloud Minders. No, 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 mind your minds here. I tried to make it more interesting. 
Cloud mining sounds interesting. Cloud minding sounds like the world's most boring shepherd. Because right, you know, one of those uh, leads to uh, you know uh, Lando Calrissian. The other one leads to, I guess, airborne little Bo Peep. All right, so we've got three sort of notable guest stars in this episode. For certain uh, levels of notoriety, yes. Sabrina Scarif as Miramami. I could never hear what Miramami? they were saying. Miramami. Endami. Edamame. I might, I might call her the Ronnie at some point. Yeah, I think it's Miramami. They, they didn't really enunciate the names well in this episode. Yes. Uh, she was a model and actor. Uh, was on a lot of contemporary shows like Gunsmoke, Daniel Boone, Wild Wild West. Uh, later on, she ran for California State Senate and became a lawyer. Pretty successful career after this trash. She escaped. She got out. She you know, lived a better life. Good. <laughs> uh, Rudy Solari as Salish. I probably am going to mispronounce that uh, name myself. Uh, Salish, uh, which is also a, a name given to a group of uh, native folks in the northwest, uh, uh, a specific region there. But also, like, the name doesn't really come up. This is the first time hearing of it was when I was looking at the cast list, so. I think it's said, like, maybe once. So it was kind of one of those, you, could, you know, if you're not paying attention for it, you're going to miss it, so thing. They were another contemporary character actor, appearing in The Bionic Woman, Charlie's Angels, Incredible Hulk, other such shows. Best known for this appearance on Star Trek. It was on Switch. I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> and Richard Hale as Goro. Who is sort of playing the chief character, I guess. Mm, he was a trained opera singer on a lot of uh, TV shows and movies, including in Kill a Mockingbird, where he plays the sinister neighbor. I've, I don't think I've seen that version, actually. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie in ages, so I wouldn't be able to remember if there's a Sinister Neighbor or if it's a different version or what. Anyway, it was just on the list, so why not? He's also in Thriller. Not that one. <laughs> All right, we may as well jump in, because this, um, this is not a good one, as we've it's, said. It's an experience. Yeah. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, did you get any indication that any of these actors uh, and actresses uh, were uh, Native American at all? Oh, no. Oh, oh dear. I mean, at least one is, um, is I think, possibly um, Greek heritage, or which, like, southern Italy and Greece, uh, people from that region got a lot of work as Native Americans in this time period. They, they, they did not come off as uh, straight-up general uh, you know, northern European white folks, so. So, you know, you got the browner versions of Europeans. Mm -hmm. to play Native Americans a lot in this era. Whoops. Yeah. And I think there's some makeup involved on some of the characters. And we we have uh, talked about uh, yellow face and brown uh, black face and things like that a little bit before. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure there's some of that going on here, too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down to a remarkably Earth-like planet. They even remark on how remarkably similar it is to, say, a pine forest in California. Is this another Earth clone? I, they, they just <laughs> keep talking about how weird it is that it's so Earth-like, even though it's no more Earth-like than, like, every other planet they've gone to. It's like, so we're up to number five, maybe, at this point? Uh. <laughs> they soon stumble upon a large alien obelisk covered in odd runes. 
uh, Spock marks on the complexity that would be needed to build what looks like a big bronze obelisk. Like, they were building these in ancient Rome, so... So, uh, about that technologically advanced, I guess. So. But they don't have Shrug. time to look at it because they have to leave to stop an asteroid that's going to come destroy this planet. Because I guess it's standard practice to come wander around in the place that you're trying to prevent from being destroyed before you go take care of the problem. I don't understand why they're here. <laughs> it's like we wouldn't want to waste all this time saving an ugly planet. I want to make sure it's it's uh, good enough for us uh, to uh, come and uh, swoop in and save it. Otherwise, yeah, who cares? Uh, Kirk wants to take the last 30-minute buffer window they have to go see what sort of life forms live on this cool Eden planet that he's so into. And they soon are across the river from Native Americans. Well, what, what kind of Native Americans, Gepwin? Spock somehow is able to specify them as a mixture of Navajo, Mohican, and Delaware peoples. So, kind of just everywhere, then. I saw some structures that would be indicative of Plains Indians. Uh, so tribes from that area and some structures that would be indicative of eastern tribes. Um, I didn't see anything particularly Navajo, which was actually pretty common around where I grew up. So I don't know um, where where they are seeing that, but okay. <laughs> I think they're seeing it in their assumptions that the uh, you know the audience might actually know it's something you know you know you know nothing about this. To be so. more specific, they had a longhouse and a teepee. Which are like, yes. I, I at least applaud them for recognizing those are from two different areas mm -hmm. and peoples that lived completely differently because often they just put TPs everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So there's a little more specificity and uh, diversity in the, uh, the native uh, cultures of the Americas than a lot of the folks uh, yeah, tend to assume here. Kirk goes all whimsical about living simply in nature, and McCoy tells Spock about the old Tahiti syndrome and its effect on stressed-out leader types. Stressed-out leader types who just want to, like, take a vacation? I'm just okay. realizing, I think I forgot <laughs> to mention the name of the episode, is the Paradise Syndrome, which still bugs me, because if you're going to name Tahiti Syndrome, why did you name it Paradise Syndrome? Why didn't you just call the episode Tahiti Syndrome if you're going to say he's got Tahiti Syndrome? Maybe they thought Tahiti was too uh, unknown or something? Then why doesn't he just say, ah, the old Paradise Syndrome? If you're going to yeah, name drop the episode, sense. name drop it. Don't name drop half the episode. <laughs> uh, anyway. You know, I, I, hear, I, I hear Tahiti. It's, it's a magical place. They return to the obelisk, and while they prepare to beam up, Kirk calls the ship and then falls into a panel that suddenly opens underneath him, dropping out of sight until he stands, turns on something, is hit by a beam of something, and gets knocked out. Well, I guess it kind of uh, serves Kirk right for trying to, you know, put this planet in danger unnecessarily. Spock lingers around searching for Kirk, but... They can't find him, and he finally admits to McCoy that they don't have time to keep looking and they have to leave because if they don't stop this asteroid, it's going to kill everyone on the planet. McCoy is, like, predictably resistant to the, any of Spock's ideas, so Spock has to explain to him that if they don't leave this very second, they're not going to have time to stop the asteroid and everyone on the planet, including Kirk, will die. Then, after McCoy argues more, he has to pick up two rocks and use visual aids to explain to McCoy how an asteroid works. 
so that he will finally go, okay, I guess we should go, even though I made you spend an extra 15 minutes explaining this thing when you said that that's going to make us late and we aren't going to be able to stop this rock that I'm having to use as a demonstration because you're dumb. So I I could appreciate to a certain extent the writers wanting to have uh, a situation sometime during the episode where they would explain exactly what the Enterprise is trying to do and why they need to be doing it right on the schedule, but this is not the time to do that. Also, when he has to, like, he can explain it, fine, but, like, he had to explain it four times the last time we used visual aids, and then McCoy goes, okay, sure, and you don't even need get to get McCoy to agree to do this, because he outranks him. Yes. <laughs> like, Doctor, we're beaming up right now. Uh, Kirk, uh, Spock Enterprise, do the thing, so. Fine, McCoy, you stay here, then. Why do we need you to reroute an asteroid? Yeah, the the interactions between McCoy and Spock in this episode are just so bizarre. It's like, you know, all, all the, the goodwill and character building between them that we've gotten so far just kind of tossed out the window and it's like back to uh, beginning of season one again. See, nothing in this episode makes sense because they wanted to set up this, like, incredibly obtuse situation for Kirk. Like, they, they wanted to write something completely differently, because as we'll get to, he's not even acting like Kirk for most of this episode. So they wanted to set up this incredibly specific situation, and they didn't care how they did it. Kirk wakes up, and we get him voiceovering himself that he's lost his memories and is confused. Which, as far as I know, this is one of the only times that it happens where he's live voiceovering. We're getting an actual internal monologue instead of a captain's log. Well, there is the whole weirdness where Kirk seems to give captain's logs in situations where he can't actually give a captain's log. So perhaps he's always been voice uh, monologuing to himself and his captain logs are uh, all just a fiction. He finds his way out of the obelisk just as two women walk by and they bow to him and take them to their village. Oh, Kirk would, you know, if he knew who he, who he was, would find this not unusual, of course. But uh, given he's lost his memory, he's like, what? Meanwhile, Spock's running late for some reason. Who knows? So he needs to push <laughs> the engines really fast to reach the asteroid in time, something that everyone's yelling at him about. Because like, I don't know why he's in such a hurry. Just a planet-destroying asteroid, you know. A whole delay and explain things to McCoy 5,000 times. And yeah, why is he asking us to go faster? So weird. We're Vulcan doing weird things. Can't trust him. <laughs> Kirk is taken to a large wooden lodge where he talks to the village elder who inspects him. And while they say that they trust Miramani, the village priestess. That's what I have in my notes. Yeah, Miramani. <laughs> I keep wanting to call to like pronounce it like Tiatame from the Discworld books. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> we, we can do nicknames because uh, uh, apparently they just made up the name for this episode anyway. So... So she is the village priestess. She is in charge of taking care of the obelisk, and things are weird right now, so they need to make sure that, like, you know, the obelisk sent them this god dude who Kirk is supposed to be, so they need to give him a test or something. And the medicine chief, Salish, is mistrustful of this random white guy who just showed up. Understandably. Good instincts, dude. <laughs> I don't know, I have a bad feeling that maybe something like this has happened before where a bunch of uh, white folks showed up and, uh, well, and then a bunch of people died, and uh, and then uh, we, we got whisked away here, yes. Hmm. Before they can make any decisions, a woman brings a child inside who was trapped in a fishing net and has drowned. So Nash announces him to be dead, but Kirk, working on instinct, I guess, does mouth-to-mouth? Now, I will admit, I learned CPR in the early 2000s. 
so things might have changed. But I do not remember the part where you are supposed to not do chest compressions and wiggle someone's legs around. I think that, uh, yeah, I, I don't remember if he actually checked for a pulse, but uh, you want to maybe do that first as well. Yeah, he didn't check for a pulse. He just does the mouth-to-mouth part. So he breathes into the kid's mouth, which, um, since we're talking CPR, is no longer recommended. And then he wiggles the kid's legs around until he starts coughing and breathing. So CPR has changed since the 60s. I don't think you were ever supposed to just wiggle someone's legs about. Well, uh, I guess maybe I can try wiggling my legs around next time I'm drowning. Yeah, See if it helps. next time you drown, <laughs> wiggle your legs. So since Kirk has apparently now brought a kid back to life, they believe that he's a god. So yay. And he's going to replace Salish as the medicine chief. So, so what you're saying is that Kirk is just so badass, you know, they'll just declare him as the ultimate uh, power and authority in the universe, even when he doesn't know who the heck he is. Got it. They also later learn that this includes an arranged marriage to Mirani, uh, because she's just supposed to marry medicine dude, like whoever it is, no questions asked. Um, hopefully they're at least distant cousins when that happens, otherwise it'd be kind of squeaky. The Enterprise reaches the asteroid and is almost falling apart because they had to rush for some weird reason. Scotty keeps arguing that they don't have the power to do the thing, but Spock needs them to try to divert the asteroid? Everyone on the ship is like, we can't do this! It's like, we, we need to do this. Like, it's, it's what we're here for, and it's going to like kill a bunch of people if we don't. Yeah, there's some back and forth, they're just building tension, and everyone's like, oh my god, we're going to explode or something. They try to push the asteroid off course with their tractor beam, but they're unable to get the power to do so. McCoy complains about it again. Why is this guy always on the bridge? Doesn't he have medicine to do? <laughs> Spock tries to blow up the asteroid instead, which everyone is also mad about. Spock just can't do anything right to this episode. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's going to judge him negatively. <laughs> Enterprise tries to blow the asteroid up with phasers, but things burn out before it works, and they've lost engine power, so now they're going to have to like go to the planet just ahead of the asteroid, which will take a few months, and they'll only arrive hours ahead, so McCoy's like, really pissy about it. Well, I have a, a wacky idea. How will you take the Enterprise and actually, like, slowly is uh, push it up against the ap- uh, asteroid, then use the Enterprise's engines to actually divert it that way? Or since you're several months out, you could do that thing where you just park next to it and let the tiny microgravity pull it off course. Hmm, that's also true. And then later, Spock starts obsessing about the obelisk, believing it to be really important. Then McCoy gets worried about him and tells him to rest for health reasons, because there's just such a ver- there's a lot of really quick turns or turnarounds on the ship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we keep cutting back to the ship. I'm consolidating it. But every time we cut back to the ship, McCoy either hates Spock, and then the next time he's like, oh my god, I'm sorry we were mean to you. You need to sleep. And uh, the stuff on the ship, you know, as well as the stuff on the planet, of course, is happening over weeks of time, like almost two months. Uh, and so these to, these interactions are kind of just really weird. And to a certain degree, it is incomprehensible what the motivations for a lot of their actions and arguments are at some point. Mm. It's like, that was weeks ago. You guys have hopefully have resolved your, you know, impending emotional uh, butting of heads here, but not a suck on that ship. Kirk makes himself at home. He invents some stuff. He lives super, super happily. Keeps saying how happy he is and how great everything is and how he's happy. Really happy. 
Happy, happy, joy, joy. Mary tells him that it's his job to get the obelisk working and that Slash was supposed to, but his dad didn't trust him because he's an idiot. So he didn't tell him how to do it before his dad died. So now no one knows how to work the obelisk. That's why it's a little tricksy having uh, you know a line of secrets like that. Uh, you just so someone has an accident and dies a little too early, and suddenly the whole uh, chain falls apart. Elder comes in and says, "All our people want to praise you, but I didn't know what to tell them to call you." And he goes, "My name is Kurr, and they go, "Korok, sure, yeah, that." Uh, I was gonna say Kern, but Korok works too. <laughs> Kirk finds out about the getting married thing. He's still very confused, but is also happy. He's, you know, he's basically marrying marrying a fashion model, so sure. It's like, okay, I'll, uh, she seems nice. Um, um, let's do it. <laughs> and they decide that they're going to get married the very next day. He gets his face painted next to the obelisk, um, spreads his arms out and hugs himself and goes, so happy. Really weird. Be happy, joy, joy, yes. The Elder tells him to follow him back to the Lodge in a minute so that he can warn them that he's coming. I guess it's part of the ceremony, so sure. Yeah, ceremonies have a lot of weird stuff, so... On the way, Salish, who's really mad about this whole getting replaced thing, attacks Kirk with a knife. And he cuts his hand, and he goes, Gods don't bleed, and then runs off. And never does anything. Yes. <laughs> well, I know you're not divine, but... Kirk yeah. goes to the village <laughs> with a busted hand. And no one notices, and he gets married. <laughs> that went nowhere, okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, Spock has spent a lot of time studying the obelisk, even though McCoy wants him to rest. He goes, ah, you said rest, not sleep, so I rested by studying things. Yeah, he's been, you know, he's been, uh, you know, plucking away at his uh, little uh, harp there, and uh, it's like, hmm, I have some ideas. Yeah, studies it. But now everyone's on board. Like, McCoy goes, oh, we were all mad before, but then we realized that you were making command decisions like we should have realized before <laughs> we didn't know that we were just ang hangry had a snickers we're okay now does that work though you know with mccoy just transforms into angry mccoy and then back to like passive mccoy <laughs> yeah he's messing with some of that jekyll and hyde juice and sick bay <laughs> so kirk is like really happy he's so happy He's running through the woods, chasing after people in soft focus, kind of happy. Yes. He also finds out that his wife is pregnant, so he's really happy. He's super really happy. Happy, happy. Joy, joy, joy. Have we mentioned he's happy? Yes. Kirk is the, is the happiest man in the cosmos now. He still has the nightmares of his old life, but it's fine. The, the, the dark and evil times when he was running in some, a, a not-military organization uh, spaceship that went around the galaxy uh, imperializing things. So they go back to the lodge. Uh, Kirk plans out irrigation. He's explaining irrigation, like how they can divert water from the lake and irrigate fields. And then Miramani goes, you also invented lamp. I love lamp. And it's great because now you can make it light inside who has ever heard of such a thing i was like we obviously had fire before this but this is blowing our mind man he also apparently taught them how to preserve food how how are these people like surviving as like a, a, a fairly large looking community without figuring some of this stuff out i, I don't I'm a little know confused. i mentioned this because they didn't have technology until the white dude came 
even though they obviously had a lot of the things he invented like you can see them kirk you're not their savior you're these folks had some stuff going on maybe they're just humoring him now i think about it (laughs) but now the ground is shaking and a storm is Uh-oh. coming. It's the apocalypse that he's supposed to stop. All right, that's great. He's like, no, it's just a storm. It's fine. He has no idea what's going on. It starts with an earthquake, birds and snakes, an airplane, and Bloody Bruce is not afraid. So they take him to the obelisk, and he hits it and yells at it. Oh, it's a very Kirk thing sort, sort of thing to do. Slash sees this and smiles because his rival isn't able to keep them all from dying. I might be dying in this too, but ha ha. I feel like this is becoming a very apt metaphor for climate change. A little bit. We're all going to die, but I made you lose. So uh, screw you and uh, now uh, let let us all perish together. Hooray! Back on the ship, Spock is all smug because, you know, he figured out the obelisk because it's not a language. It's musical notation. Dun dun dun. I don't understand the distinction. Honestly, because okay. it's 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 symbols rep- that represent sounds. So it's just you have them at different tones as opposed to different structures of uh, you know, a pronunciation or something. I, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know how you would. He also now knows that the obelisk was built to protect the planet from asteroids because it's also a language. It's like not a language. It's music, but it's music that's a language. So, well, alternatively, Spock was just really bored. He's making all the stuff. Maybe. Yeah, they've been at this for weeks. So. <laughs> so the obelisk was built by an ancient race called the Preservers, who wander around the galaxy collecting alien civilizations that are in danger of being destroyed for one reason or another, and putting them on other planets where they can be preserved. And McCoy goes, I always wondered why there's so many humans around. And they go, yes, we'll never mention this again. So the the, the, the humanoid life forms of the galaxy come in two varieties, oh, three varieties. You have... Uh, you know, rubber forehead aliens. So like the, you know, you know, the Klingons, especially TNG onward sorts. You got the, the humans who have, uh, been apparently stolen from earth and just sort of thrown everywhere and then happened to create various clones of earth all over the galaxy. And of course, Vulcans, which various, uh, you know, sort of parallel or, you know, branches off, uh, appear as well for some reason. But now that Spock's figured out how to get the thingy sort of working again they need to get to the planet and turn it on because apparently it's built for just this scenario right, wait a moment this this that means this uh solar system is full of asteroids that keep intersecting with this planet and so you know it should have extinction level events uh, every so often and uh why would they put them on this planet then also for some reason the asteroid coming makes the ground shake and the water run cold and storms start months out Months, months away. Let's continue singing more of uh, it's in the world as we know it, but I think I'll save everyone <laughs> from that. So, <laughs> the amplitude comes. It comes for you! Back on the planet, Salish has led a mob to the obelisk and they start stoning Kirk for being a false god. Like, actually throwing rocks at him. Well, uh, thankfully, Kirk, uh, you know, is the supreme badass he is. Uh, he could, you know, stand up there and take all those rocks and never be harmed at all. Uh, Mary runs up to stop them, but he just tells her to go stand with her husband and die, so she does. Uh, they both get stoned until they're unconscious, and then Spock and McCoy beam down, and that scares off everybody. All right, well, that was a uh, useful timing. Yeah, they tend to Kirk, um, seeming to notice um, 
Remember when Kirk delusionally asks about his wife, and they go, wife, is he hallucinating? Oh, there's a woman here. Well, it's probably her, so... <laughs> He's had some time here along with these people, you know, it happens. Spock mind melds with Kirk. He says that he has a really dynamic experience. It's like totally rad, man. And Kirk gets his memories back. Aha! They explain that the obelisk responds to music as a language, so they have to identify the tones that made it open accidentally before. And Kirk goes, oh, I'll do what I did before. He calls the ship. So apparently the password is Kirk to Enterprise. Well, first there's also the uh, the the sound the uh, the communicator makes. So probably maybe the whole uh, totality of that. Yeah, which like if this is supposed to be music, that's a weird song. <laughs> I'm sure sure someone's uh, remixed that uh, particular phrase together into a song. So, <laughs> so the thing he opens, they go down. Spock like figures out how the thing works. He tries to over-explain it, but Kirk goes, "Just push the button already." Just push the button, man. Come on. A beam fires out of the obelisk and pushes the asteroid away with 20 minutes or so to spare, probably. Uh, McCoy Hooray. takes Mary back to the lodge. No one is there. And he tells Kirk that her injuries are too extreme and that she's going to die. So we end no, on the episode we, we, with him sitting there watching her die. Instead of taking her up to the Enterprise and trying to med bay or something, you know. So it's better that... White dude, savior guy, has, like, gets somebody pregnant on the planet, and then they kill her and an unborn child so that he doesn't have to look bad, or they don't have to introduce a new character. It's better that way. <sighs> hmm. Uh... Uh, there's various kill your blanks uh, sort of folks, uh, you know, uh, tropes out there. Uh, does one of those apply to this this point? I mean, this is this is just the white savior stuff. Like this has been in things before. Like he goes in, he saves a bunch of stuff, he gets into the culture, he marries somebody, he's gonna have a kid, then everyone has to die so that he can go back to civilization and nobody has to feel bad about how everyone died. Well, I, I think he should feel bad about this. Yeah, he should. This whole thing is just everyone talks about how bad and white savory and this episode is. Because, like, the natives are all simpletons who live with nature. And, oh, my God, it's great. Oh, this guy comes now. He invented lights and food preservation and irrigation. This is stuff we would never have thought of, despite how they had it. (laughs) <laughs> years like i looked this up because i grew up in phoenix arizona it's called phoenix because it's built on another city that was there before a city built by natives who lived in the area in about 600 a.d it was the largest canal system in north america it was built over hundreds of years. It was an incredibly large, complex canal system built by the uh, Hohokam, who lived in that area for thousands of years. Turning the, the desert into a green space where you can grow plants and things like that. And when the Spanish showed up in the 1700s, the canals were still there being used by modern Pima Indians. It was, it, it's the largest, most complex canal system in North America, and it was built hundreds of years, like almost a thousand years before Europeans ever set foot in the Americas. 
And, uh, you know, in the, this episode, they explicitly say that the preservers went around and basically uh, took folks from cultures that were uh, facing imminent destruction. So that would imply that they, you know, were, were nabbing these people and taking this planet, uh, you know, say in the 1600s specifically. So well after they've built these canals. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is a good example, you know, not a good example, like a fantastic example uh, of the lack of knowledge that folks, especially in the United States, who really should know better, uh, you know, the lack of knowledge that we got about Native cultures uh, before European, uh, you, know, uh, you, know, you, know, you know, Europeans came over uh, in any uh, you know, uh, quantity. You know, there was large, complex civilizations, you know, all over the continent. And due to the way things unfolded during that uh, encounter, those civilizations were destroyed and uh, uh, greatly reduced. You know, plagues, wars, uh, and uh, you know, general you know, general shenanigans on the white people's folks. Uh, you know, a part there uh, kind of destroyed them, and a lot of uh, what was there was lost and even forgotten, uh, which is really unfortunate. Yeah, people just don't. Like, even now, we have started talking about how complex some of the native kingdoms in Central and South America were. Like, people mm-hmm. will talk about how the Incan Empire was super complicated and had a lot of advanced stuff. And we're starting to talk about how, like, the Mayan and Aztec peoples did a lot of very complicated stuff. But we still don't talk about about native americans who were living in north america because we don't want to talk about how we wiped out functioning civilizations in fact we've talked about the we've talked about the united states constitution before on this show Mm -hmm. Um, a large portion of that was based on an agreement that was being made at the time when europeans showed up amongst tribes that lived along the eastern coast of the united states they were they were trying to negotiate a peaceful agreement to make all the tribes into like one supergroup that would be able to cooperate and stop fighting each other and like it, it was really far along it was basically done and we based a big part like our our entire constitutional structure is based on that with the mixture of like the magna carta these two you know elements from you know the place the the, the you know the Europeans came from as well as what they was already here and to make uh, something uh, you, know, you know greater something you know something fantastic that is but uh, you know we kind of have to now ignore one of those sections and only talk about the magna carta for nowadays so it's amazing how much stuff has been sort of intentionally sort of either actively forgotten disregarded at the time or straight up kind of erased it's it's kind of shocking the more we sort of uh, you know f- you know look back and reflect on this stuff and the, you know the more of this as more of this what has actually happened as far as the information goes, uh, you know, in between, you know, you know, different centuries, you know, just how, how, how bizarre and unthinkful it sounds, uh, seems for us now. Uh, and I'd actually say that us, as we get are exposed to it, uh, having this sort of reaction is, is a good thing. And is a reminder that we should make sure that that sort of stuff doesn't happen again. And I thought it was really, it was kind of interesting because I was writing up this episode and doing some research and then I just, I randomly came across this point someone made uh, just completely by accident. It's one of those things that just synced up. And they said that as an anthropologist, they're constantly bothered by the way we talk 
about native peoples in America because we always talk about them like they're gone, but they're not. There are still yeah. a lot of tribes, and they're still doing things, and they are still advancing culturally and doing a lot of interesting stuff now. Like, there's modern mm-hmm. art and music coming out of these communities that we basically ignore because, you know, Native Americans' culture stopped, you know, hundreds of years ago. Yeah, well, we still get plenty of uh, imitators, folks that, uh, you know, have no experience with those cultures, sort of taking a quick peek in and saying, oh, I can do that too. And they're just sort of stealing the designs wholesale and selling it for cheap at Walmart. Yeah, basically. And it's got, like, it's it's not that far off. Like, people would be bothered by this representation of Native Americans today if you did this now. People would be bothered by it. But I yes. don't feel like it would create as much of a stir as you would think. Like, people would be like, oh, that's dumb. You wouldn't have, like, the same kind of communal outrage you would get for other stuff. Like, we still have a lot of this lingering around. Even to this point where I don't under... Like, I don't get how people could seriously believe that any community is that dumb. Like, you needed this guy to come in and teach you how to bring light inside and preserve food. Yeah, that's just absurd. <laughs> but, uh, you know, these are biases that we still have, and, uh, you know, in, in plentiful quant- uh, quantities still. You know, you know, there are a good number of us that are working to sort of, you know, overcome and get beyond them, not follow these same ridiculous mistakes anymore. But there are, you know, plenty of folks that aren't there yet. And it's, you know, and even if, you know, even though for those of us that are trying, there are still things that we screw up on. And uh, we are just completely ignorant of because, you know, getting, you know, connecting the dots is, you know, difficult. Uh, but the, but, but, but sometimes when you sort of look at something like this, it's like, what? <laughs> this makes no sense. <sighs> the other thing that didn't make any sense, which is like, this is way more speculative because I honestly don't know enough about the religions of the tribes that they mentioned in this. I know a little bit of, uh, like, Navajo spiritual stuff from, like, just having grown up in that part of the country. Um, I don't know anything about the Mohican or Delaware. They have this thing about the god bleeding, which I can't be completely sure where it came from, but I think it was popularized by Man Who Would Be King, which um, they made a very good movie out of that starring Sean Connery in the 70s, but the book that that was based on was written in uh, 1888. That's basically the thing. Like, some guy sets himself up as a god king and then accidentally is seen bleeding and then everyone turns on him. It's, like, been used in everything. But I don't... It wasn't uncommon for gods to bleed in a lot of ancient cultures. Like, I'm saying straight out, I do not know for sure about Native American religions, but, like, Greek gods could bleed, and Egyptian gods bled, and I know Mayan gods bled all the frickin' time. They, they held a whole thing about it. Yeah, there's plenty of gods that uh, are going around and killing other gods as part of the uh, you know various uh, stories in there. Uh, so yeah, this idea that a god is you know I guess a you know like you know, like the, the would be of the same qualities as the uh, like a Christian god where it is all-powerful uh, and thus, you know, have any you know, a, a conception of being able to be injured in a physical sense wouldn't make sense. That 
isn't the norm for a lot of cultures. Yeah, it's a very Western god idea. Mm -hmm. Our whole, you have an abstract being that is super powerful and wouldn't be able to be harmed and is eternal and whatnot. So this whole, like, especially when you're setting up something like a god king, like, I, I guarantee you that if the pharaoh got a nosebleed, everyone in Egypt didn't turn on him. <laughs> that would be kind of hilarious, though, if, you know, it's like, yeah, we, you could get stabbed, and you'll, you know, we'll still worship you as a god, but if you get a nosebleed, ah, oh, sorry, no, buddy. <laughs> gods don't get nosebleeds. <laughs> oh, damn it, the, the air is here is so dry. <laughs> It's just lazy. Like, the whole thing just is lazy, which makes it really hard. I don't think this really has a lot of point. Like, these episodes bother me because they don't seem to have a purpose. Like, there's not really an overarching thing they're trying to explore. I think, arguably, it's, like, kind of the whole getting back to nature and whether that makes you happier than the modern world thing. But since they've tied it all up in a noble savage motif, it's hard to look at. Yeah. I think that is the only message they're trying to go with this on this one. And yeah, it's just too much baggage. But then what's the point that they're going for? Because his entire life gets killed at the end. Well, it's, uh, it's like a vacation and we all have to go back to our responsibilities, you know, go on vacation, get a girl pregnant, watch her, die horribly and then go off to your normal city job and civilization who hasn't done that was it uh Matherton, uh butterfly that has a plot like this too probably because you know it was, uh, it was like pinkerton i believe was the guy's name goes to japan gives himself a wife leaves comes back she finds out he married somebody in the states and you know, you know suicide and all that uh but yeah uh, this is what you're talking about uh, you know gods here it does kind of remind me that in this uh, episode, they sort of explicitly say that, quote, the, you know, the gods or divine powers, whatever, created the obelisk and had this ritual and things like that. And that sort of made me think that there is, that this these aliens, in their efforts to uh, uh, see these cultures across the, the galaxy or whatever the heck they're actually doing, uh, apparently destroyed the these people's religion. And replaced it with one based around them. Yeah, I mean, you're basically getting into the ancient aliens thing again. Which, as we've already talked about, is another racist white dude idea that native cultures or non-white cultures wouldn't be able to function unless a higher power was looking out for them. Which is exactly what we have here. These people cannot function except that the obelisk builder people put in safeguards that keep them from dying. And this, this whole system they set up is also fairly ridiculous and requires it to be at least, you know, for any of its functionality to have this uh, faith instilled in these people with a certain, uh, you, know, you know, series of actions and procedures they go through each generation in order to pass down the very highly specific knowledge in order to uh, blast away asteroids when they show up. And yeah, <laughs> it's like, it's so... I know I've said ridiculous already several times this episode, but this is very ridiculous. This, and it's in uh, in terms of in the context of the show, you know, independent of what the writers were, were sort of uh, doing with it, this very much implies that these aliens were making this choice intentionally. They could have set up a a automated system to sort of just do this, perhaps something in orbit, you know, like an automated platform that blasts away asteroids occasionally. Uh, but no, they put it on the planet in order to have this be something that these people do. 
kind of kind of begs the questions why it reminds me of uh oh what's that one called yeah orphans of the sky heinland book about a multi-generational spacecraft they start off looking after the spaceship and they know that they have to teach every generation how to look after the spaceship because it's a multi-generational ship and after however many generations it goes from just teaching people how to run the ship as engineering to doing a certain amount of things in order as a religion which was also the plot of a short story in isaac asimov's i robot where a group of robots programmed to look after a space station turned the mundane tasks that they had to do into a religion i don't think i've read that one but i think i've heard about this it be a reoccurring motif in this era of science fiction that doing a bunch of mindless tasks over and over in specific orders for no readily apparent reason is a religion or you know maybe a society could without the if this is being sort of built in and instilled that could have a, an alternative way to do such uh, such things say an education system so maybe you don't have just the medicine guy uh, dude there uh, who you know, has the secret password in order to do the thing. You can have anyone, uh, you know, with the knowledge and uh, maybe even have someone that's, you know, is it's their job to do the specific thing. But in case that person, say, dies of an accident before they pass on the knowledge, there's there's multiple backups here. Yeah, this is a bad system. Because, <laughs> you know, even in those, those examples you gave there, I'm guessing the uh, the folks involved had uh had shared some of this knowledge around so there wasn't this mystery this arcane aspect to it yeah you have the whole freaking priesthood thing going on in most of those and the one's just robots so they're not gonna they're, they just do that <laughs> they can copy paste whenever they like <laughs> but i mean the way that they did that with this just reinforces the whole white savior narrative that they're doing in the show because if the enterprise hadn't shown up and saved them they all would have died because no one knew how to work the freaking obelisk thing. Well, I guess it kind of suggests to me that these aliens set up this ridiculous system in order that the they would continue to be worshipped by the, by these people so until such time as the at system broke down, and then they'll be destroyed by an asteroid. Yeah. I'm suddenly wondering if these aliens, these preservers, might be related to the Ori. <laughs> <laughs> You're not worshiping us. Uh, you're not worth uh, living, so uh, you better die now. Hmm. Uh, if anyone's wondering what the hell I'm re- referencing, that's some uh, Stargate SG One. <laughs> so basically, I'm tired of this. Uh, like, I looked up stuff on like, you know, actual native cultures because that's the only thing I could think to talk about with this stuff. Because you know, just going, you know, debunking some of the dumb junk they have. But overall, it's just I, I, this whole like, like going back to nature thing. I mean, I guess they have the technological fear that we've talked about before. I feel like they're just recycling themes. Like this whole episode is a recycling of themes. They took the going back, leading like they've done this lead a simple life, whatever thing, over and over. But it's also bad because you aren't using technology, but it's also good because using too much technology is bad. I guess you have the perfect mix of technology with the Enterprise because they're not bad. Uh, shrug. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the Enterprise uh, exists in a, a special localized minimum where they have just enough technology to save the day, but not so much to destroy the universe. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> 
So uh, we got anything else here? Or, uh... Nope, I think that was it, unless you had something. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about you know some Nader cultures and things like that and some good stuff there. Uh, you know, I could probably try to pull up a few more things here, but I think we're probably good on that. Uh, but I, would, I guess I'd suggest for the listeners that if you want to know more about Native cultures, especially in North America, uh, to not use Star Trek as your means of getting that exposure. Yes. Uh, you know, you know, do independent research, do reading, uh, especially more recent stuff that's been put together uh, by people that actually know what they're talking about, preferably people that actually, you know, are part of those cultures, uh, because once again, they still do exist. Uh, and, you know, if, you know, you get the opportunity, see if you can uh, track down somebody who is actually, you know, a member of a, a tribe or something like that. Uh, or, or, you know, um, you know, someone with, you know, firsthand experience, uh, and, you know, get, get cut through the high Hollywood nonsense here and actually, you know, learn something about the, you know, some of the folks out there. Yeah, if you're going to write about cultures that aren't yours, don't rely on a lot of half remembered tropes that you saw on a TV show that one time. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, you know, there are certain things I've generally sort of tried to avoid in my own writing because of my own ignorance. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'd like to think I'm more knowledgeable about native cultures in the, in the Americas than uh, your uh, uh, Joe Random person. Um, but uh, I'm not anywhere near where I need to be in order to be able to write it about such uh, in a, a, a proper fashion there. So, so if I'm not doing it, be cautious about trying yourself. <laughs> Okay, I think with all that, we've talked about this for way too long. This episode doesn't... I don't know, there was more to talk about in Spock's brain than this. I feel like people were just looking at the editing there. Everyone wants to ignore the messages of these shows. The People have different sort of perspective on what's good and bad, and we need to remember that while we sort of look at things. Like, you know, both of us... You know, we, you know, I'm guessing our favorite episode is not the favorite episode that everyone has at the top of their list, so... Uh, yeah, so, so do remember that, folks. Perspective. It's a thing. Okay, seems like we've run out of stuff, which usually means it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show! Hey everybody, welcome back to the galaxy's favorite game show. We had some points to uh, tally up here. Perhaps more than we wanted to, less than we probably should have. Uh, so, uh, Gepwin, are you excited for this week? Oh, yeah, sure. So <laughs> excited. Yeah, I'm having trouble keeping the excitement myself here. Uh, our first uh, prize is the Sufficiently Advanced Aliens Prize, which goes to the Unseen Preservers for being this be- to basically everyone, apparently. Uh, and, you know, just kind of sprinkling a bunch of uh, you know folks around the galaxy and building super death lasers that you can open with a tonal lock. What do they win, Gepwin? The preservers get a terrarium. Because you know what's fun? Like messing with people and moving them around, but more ethical is keeping some lizards or something. A good friend of mine has a couple terrariums. Uh, he collects frogs. It's pretty sweet. Our uh, second uh, prize award here is the Hard Drive Brain uh, Award, which goes to Kirk for his ra- uh, uh, radical memory loss due to a technological zapping he got. What does he win, Gepwin? Kirk gets one of those 18th century clockwork brains because it's not going to be wiped as easily and it's going to do about the same stuff that he does. <laughs> it's going full analog then. Oh, <laughs> 
Our third award is the Guitar Hero Award, which goes to Spock for figuring out the absurd locking mechanism was actually just Hangar 18 on Expert. What does he win, Geplin? Spock gets that was unfortunately the last and newest iteration of the Guitar Hero controller with that cool touchpad, because that didn't get used at all, and it was right near the end of things, and I hope someone modded that into like an actual MIDI controller for the computer, because that thing was neat, and nobody had one. Oh, I actually have one. It unfortunately doesn't work anymore. But, you know, <laughs> uh, our final award prize is the Not Cool Man Award, which goes to kind of basically everyone who thought this story was a good idea. What are the what collective item of shame do all they uh, get, Gepwin? I think they and the writers of any Star Trek from now on, because they were still doing this in Voyager, is a freaking history book. Like, any, any history book. Preferably one written after the 60s, but, you know, just generally any history textbook at all would have been an improvement here. You know, uh, maybe looking up something, uh, you know, not just relying on, oh, this was on a different TV show, etc., etc. Yeah, because really, man, that this wasn't cool, man. No, not at all. Well, I'm depressed, Kepwin. How about you? Yeah, let's be done with this. Thanks, everyone, for joining oh, yeah. us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Yay! We're done with that crap! Yeah, I'm sorry, everybody. I'm tired today, and this episode was very uninspiring. So I hope at least it was funny. Uh, you know, uh, maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll have more luck luck next time. Oh no! <laughs> oh, oh no! Oh, I no. mean, it's better than this because there's not a horrible, horrific message in it, as far as I can tell. No, well, um, it, it involves small children, though, doesn't it? Yeah, we're back to this. We're recycling episodes more. <laughs> next episode is called "And the Children Shall Lead." Um, and what was the first part of the sentence? Yeah, don't start your don't start your episode title with a conjunction just don't do it it just has no function then we're not singing again <laughs> and the children's show lead where the enterprise goes to a planet where all the adults are gone and there's nothing again. left but children again yeah yep <laughs> it's not an earth copy planet this time and i think the adults are dead for a different reason so, so it'll maybe make more sense? It doesn't. It doesn't make more sense. No. <laughs> no. This third season's going to be fun. What you're saying, Gepwin, is I should go back in time, uh, become a writer for Star Trek, and give them ideas. Yeah. See what I could do. <laughs> I will admit that I have fallen off some of the reading because I don't have as much time, and with my dyslexia, it takes me a bit longer to get through books. So I need a lot of time if I'm going to sit down and read fiction. But when I was younger, I read a decent amount of, like, pulp sci-fi from this era. I remember it having better ideas. Now, maybe that's just because I read it when I was younger. But I remember pulp sci-fi having better ideas than this. And they keep talking about how they got, like, advice and writers from, like, some of the top sci-fi people of the time. Like, I know Asimov was a fan of the show. I don't think he ever wrote an episode for it. But, like, he, he gave some feedback on things. Like, I don't... How did they not have good ideas? I don't know. Uh, maybe they... 
quote, listen to authors and things like that, but didn't really incorporate their ideas. Because uh, I guess a lot of the, uh, you know, you know, writing credits often include, you know, created by Gene Roddenberry specifically. And so maybe he was very much a, well, that's a great idea, but I got my own idea sort of person. Like, I know that I get very down on this series. Like, it had a lot of good ideas, and it had it did some very progressive stuff for the 60s. But it also had a lot of very bad ideas and a lot of very poorly written things. And the only reason anyone remembers it super fondly is because the movies were better. Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. <laughs> if they hadn't done the whole like Star Wars to movie thing that they did later, this would have been kind of a very popular sci-fi show that was out in the 60s that people sort of remember. Well, I will say that from my own experience, you know, moving into the more modern series, uh, you know, you know, was, I guess, a, a general blessing because uh, there is some very good stuff that is uh, in the, you know, the you know, TNG era on. Um, but to get there was kind of a miracle. <laughs> yeah. Given what we're sort of facing here, especially in the third season. I'm sorry. This season's just burning me out a little already, and we're only on the third episode. <laughs> but this season hmm. is, like, notoriously bad. Like, it's not completely their fault. They cut their budget and moved them to a bad time shot slot and were, like, intentionally trying to kill the show at this point. So the fact that they made anything passable is kind of a miracle. Maybe uh, maybe when it comes up to, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the our, our movie breaks there, uh, maybe you know, maybe I should uh, before you know not pick a movie, but uh, pick a, a different sci-fi show of a of a similar era that is uh, not nearly as depressing to sort of help us get back in the groove of things again. That might help. Yeah, <laughs> I'll see what I can do there. Okay, so I ranted a bit from other stuff at the end here because I'm in a bad mood with this episode, but. <laughs> Understandably. Next week, <laughs> we'll find out what in the world the beginning of this sentence was. <laughs> and, and the children shall lead. Next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, kids rule this planet of hats. have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>